better get to it. Uh, so let's talk, let's talk about the future, all right? And while you kind of uh, change direction a little bit, and I do, we start thinking about the future, uh, let's talk about the Olympics just a little bit more. Did you have the opportunity to watch the opening ceremonies? Oh, my God, I don't think I ever saw anything like that. Magnificent propaganda, I, I mean uh, presentation. I, it was the wrong word I used. Unbelievable presentation. Did you, did you see the theme of the Olympics? One world, one dream, my foot. I mean, one world, I added the... Don't you think that fits in quite appropriately to what we've been speaking about, about the aspiration in the direction of globalism, as if we could pull it off. And for a moment... Uh, during one of my weaker moments, you know, when I watch the opening ceremonies and you see the athletes representing the various nations of the world bedecked in wonderful costumes and clothing and they all gathered together midfield at this magnificent stadium and holding hands and embracing one another and it just all looked so peaceful and harmonious and then I just found it in interesting juxtaposition with what I saw when a camera panned uh, famous personages there. Uh, um, Vladimir Putin, Prime Minister of Russia, was there seated in the stands, perhaps you saw, and I just was wondering what in the world was going on while he was sitting there, and the uh, team, the athletes from Georgia, not the, the American Georgia, but Georgia over there, when they came in proudly holding the flag representing their independence and sovereignty, when Prime Minister Putin's uh, Air Force was invading uh, them, even it's a sovereign independent, and I just thought, ah, the irony of it all. Here's this depiction of peacefulness and harmony, and let's all hold hands and get along, and, you know, one world, one... But there's a world leader who's in the midst of war, and... Of course, our own president was just a few seats down from Prime Minister Putin, and we're in the midst of war. I don't know of a time when we weren't in the midst of war. One place or another, it's just part of the fabric of human nature, I guess. And it's a terrible thing, war. I mean, I suppose the movies glorify it, but... It isn't a glorious thing. It's only a necessary evil because of the corruption which dwells within us. So much loss of life in the history of humankind during war. You know, you, you feel like screaming out, don't you? When will it end? Enough already with war. Will war ever come to an end? Well, uh, you should read the Bible. It'll tell you. Uh, the answer is yes. But here's another irony. The Bible tells us that war will come to an end, but through another war. It says war will finally come to an end through a final world war. The intensity and scope of which is like nothing we've ever seen. It'll make World War I and II pale in comparison to the intensity and devastation 
of this final war to end all wars. And it's that which we will discuss briefly tonight. And we'll do so by consulting the scriptures, lest we just speculate about all this. Uh, The Lord has been very good to lay it out for us. Here, for instance, take a look. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. And the sixth angel, it says here, poured out his bowl. Uh, upon the great river Euphrates, uh, the bowl, it's a symbol of judgment. There are a series of judgments. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, what has preceded the bowl judgments are the trumpet judgments. Here are the bowl, here's the sixth bowl judgment. The angel poured out his bowl of judgment upon the great river That's the Euphrates, it says right there. You know about it, don't you? Tigris and Euphrates, oh my heavens, in the news uh, based on our involvement in Iraq so much even today. Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Euphrates River was the eastern boundary of the land promised by God to Israel in the Bible. The Euphrates River. It begins in Turkey, Mount Ararat. Snows melt, waters flow down the steep incline, and it begins the Euphrates River. It's a great river. It flows 1,800 miles until it empties into the Persian Gulf. The sixth bowl judgment was poured out upon it so that its water, 1,800 miles, its water was dried up. Why? Well, it says that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. In this day, uh, John's readers, when they heard the phrase kings from the east, knew very little about the people groups to the east of the Euphrates. You have to understand, it was just a different day. And so uh, the east was a dark and mysterious place filled with much foreboding for the Apostle John's readers. You remember, you know, he's received this revelation and he's writing about it. John is. So in that day, they didn't know what was going on east of the Euphrates very much. We do much more today. We know about the lands and the people groups to the east of the Euphrates. One of those people groups, interestingly, is China, isn't it? In excess of one billion people. Oh, my heavens. One out of every, approximately one out of every five people on earth is Chinese. That's a lot of people, huh? So those are, that's a people group east of the Euphrates. And because that's where they're located, some who study prophecy believe that the kings from the east are very clearly a reference to the Chinese. Well, they may be. I mean, I don't know. I, I do know there are many other people groups in addition to the Chinese to the east of the Euphrates. For instance, that's where Afghanistan is, Pakistan, India, Japan. Iraq, Iran, and China, many others. So, I don't know, maybe all of these nations are somehow getting together 
to travel west, crossing now the dried up Euphrates for some particular reason. I mean, the phrase, the kings from the east, in the original language, Greek, actually means the kings from the rising sun. So, you know, the sun rises in the east, and so you got a bunch of world leaders. That's what kings represents over there where the sun begins its magnificent course. Lots and lots of diverse people groups, but somehow they get together in a rather foolish and insane interest in going on conquest of the Holy Land. That's Israel. Uh, so the text tells us more now in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13. And I saw, you know, John's recording this. I saw, said he, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So you have an orchestrated effort here by the counterfeit trinity, which we spoke of before. Here's the counterfeit trinity. They're all getting together to pull this off. So the first member of the counterfeit trinity is the dragon, which is another name for? Yeah, for Satan. Yeah, the dragon. So, uh, uh, so the dragon or Satan is a parody or counterfeit of the first person of the real trinity, God the Father. And then it mentioned here also in the text, uh, the second personality, uh, the beast. Remember we mentioned not actually a beast, but a beastly human. That's the Antichrist. We spent a lot of time talking about that character before. the anti So he's the second person of the false or counterfeit trinity. And so he's a parity of God the Son. See, the dragon, God the Father, and the beast, God the Son. And then you have the third person of the false trinity. Look, it says the false prophet. And we read about him. And he's another human agent used by Satan. He is particularly useful to Satan in orchestrating the one world religion, which we spoke about. So the counter... Satan is not creative. You understand? He copies. God creates Satan counterfeits, for he wants to be like the most high God. Really, if you can get that figured out, life is not that complicated. There's the true God, and there's the anti-God, and the anti-God wants to receive the worship which is due the true God. And so everything about the world has nothing to do with politics and all the rest. It has to do with the cosmic spiritual conflict behind the scenes between the real Christ and the Antichrist. So here you have the counterfeit trinity and they're all getting together and out of their mouths, John says, he says, oh my goodness, he says, holy Toledo, I saw three unclean spirits, they're like frogs. Now they're not literally frogs. See what he says, like frogs? You know why he says they're like frogs? Because he's at a loss for words, that's why. Can you kind of relate? He's an elderly man at this point. He's exiled on the island of Patmos. It's in the Aegean Sea. He's kind of freaking out a little bit. He has this vision. He wasn't in a neat little Bible study room receiving um, tempting goodies like uh, you guys did in Brownsville. I mean, he's just showing up there, and all of a sudden, kaboom! He sees all this stuff, and he sees it's otherworldly. He, does, he doesn't have the vocabulary to describe it, and that's why he says, you see this all through Revelation. Well, what I saw was, it wasn't literally, but it was like a, in this case, like frogs. 
But they weren't really frogs. They were unclean spirits. You know, that's another phrase for demons. Unclean spirits. Demons. The terms are used interchangeably. Why frogs? You see, John was Jewish. I don't know if you knew this. His real name was Yochanan. Yeah, every cool person in the Bible is Jewish. Let's just get that figured out. So, 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 so why does he say frog? Because for Jews, frogs are treif. That means unkosher. Sorry, frogs, legs, enthusiasts. Uh, we don't do the frog thing. So... <laughs> So he's just trying to describe something repulsive and dirty and defiled. And he said, you know, frogs is what, he's, is what he's talking about. You know, he could very well have said, if it was today, hogshead cheese. Have you ever had that? Yeah. I, they made me eat it when I was in Louisiana. Yeah, it was really, really good. It, it, uh, it made me shorter. I, I was taller. So anyway, frog, and just to be sure that you understand, these are not literally frogs. Look how helpful the text is. Revelation 16, verse 14. Look, for they are spirits of demons. See? So it's good you can use the Bible to interpret itself. You wonder, what are the frogs? Well, here's the answer. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. This is a global thing. To gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now that verse explains how all these diverse people groups got together. The frogs perform signs. Get the attention of the world's leaders through their constant croaking. And the world's leaders start heading west on a conquest of Israel and the Holy Land, but they don't realize that they are playing right into the hands of sovereign God. And this is what it means to be sovereign God. You're not, and neither am I, only the true God is sovereign. In this case, it means, his sovereignty means, he has the capacity to use the forces of evil to judge the forces of evil. He has the capacity to use all of these evil world armies in rebellion against him and in pursuit of Israel. Sovereign God has the capacity to turn it all on themselves so that the ultimate outpouring of God's wrath is actually inflicted on the part of one army against the other. Wow, this is a sovereign God. You see, he can not only use difficult and painful things for good, he can use evil entities against themselves. That's why we sing that beautiful song, Victory in Jesus, you see. It's not victory in one world, one dream. Give me a break. One nightmare. It's victory in Jesus. I mean, you can hold hands in the Olympic Stadium all you want, and when it's over, you're going to be shooting at one another because that's human nature, you see. Victory in Jesus. And so, so he's sovereign. And so it says he's gathering them. Look, for the war of the great day of 
God, the Almighty, the unholy trinity is involved. They think they're calling the shots, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, but they're not. God sits on his throne and laughs. Don't you see? By the way, that's the God you belong to if you're a Christian. That ought to help you to sleep at night. He's in control. He's sovereign. And just to point out that God is not taken by surprise and that he's calling the shots. Uh, I mean, he reminded us of this centuries ago through one of his prophets, Joel, in chapter 3, verse 2. Listen, God's speaking. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's a valley just south of the old city of Jerusalem. Lord willing, some of us be going to Israel. We'll stand right in that valley. It's there. It's the real deal. God says, I'm gathering all the nations of the world to this particular place. Why? Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. That's what it says, folks. Whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up. I love this. They have divided up my land, God says. Whose land is it? The rulers of the world argue about the holy land. Whose land is it? Well, God said it's my land. Ooh. So all this land for peace stuff, the land of Israel carved up under the false premise of peace. <gasps> They're carving up God's land. That's not good. Hence, the wrath of God is going to be outpoured during this horrific period of time. We've been spending a lot of time talking about the Great Tribulation, you see? And so God is in charge. The final war doesn't take him by surprise. He knows about it. And it's not just a battle. It's actually a full-fledged military campaign. And all military campaigns are multi-phased. So to this final campaign, it takes place in, will take place in different phases and in different locales in the Holy Land and will extend over the uh, entire last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So this is not like, you know, one day kind of a deal. This is a whole campaign. In fact, the Greek word for battle is actually more accurately interpreted multifaceted campaign, not singular battle. So the war will extend, this final war, throughout the land of Israel. But it will have a particular staging area, which you have heard of, I'm sure. It is a specific location in northern Israel, and here we're told about it in Revelation 16, 16. Look what it says. And they... The frogs, the, the unclean spirits, gathered them, the nations of the world, together to the place which in Hebrew, because you remember John is speaking Hebrew, in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Har, you see, if you say it fast, what does it sound like? Armageddon. 
You've heard about it. I mean, Hollywood producers make movies about it. People write books about it. Of course, they don't know what they're talking about as a general rule. But this is the place of the staging area of the world's armies. And I'll tell you where it is. First of all, Har means hill or mount. So when you put Har and Megiddo together, you get the hill of Megiddo. And Megiddo is a famous city in northern Israel. You can go there today. Day. It's actually a mount, the Mount of Megiddo. And if you climb up to it, and we're going to do it, Lord willing, you look out upon the largest valley in Israel. It's called the Jezreel Valley. And that is the staging area for the armies of the world uh, in a quest to finally solve the Jewish problem and take Jerusalem. It'll be here. What a valley. Napoleon saw it and said this would be a good place for war. Why? Different entranceways, level, playing field. If it's 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. You can go there. It's beautiful, agricultural, very pastoral setting. Don't be fooled. That's Har Megiddo, that's Armageddon. That's the staging place for the world's armies. They don't want the Jezreel Valley, which biblically has been the place of many, many battles. I mean, King Solomon took Megiddo one time as one of his fortress cities because he was guarding the pass into the Jezreel Valley. But the nations of the world at the end of the tribulation, they don't want the Jezreel Valley. They're coming to take Jerusalem. Don't you see? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Yerushalayim. That's what they want. Why do they want it? (laughs) Because the Lord Jesus is coming back there. And the Lord Jesus will receive worship there in a temple. If you're a believer, oh man, are you going to be worshiping him like crazy? There! Satan read the Bible. He says, no, 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 I've got to put a stop to this. I know I'll try to get Jerusalem for myself. I'll do stuff. I'll have a magnificent old Muslim holy place built smack dab in the center of Jerusalem. I'll build a wall around it to keep Jesus out. Give me a break. The word earthquake comes to mind. Where's your dome? Where's your wall? Earthquake. So anyway, Satan read the Bible and he's... Remember, frogs are demonic spirits. Through signs and wonders, they stir up the nations of the world to come. They don't want the farmland of the Jezreel Valley. They're coming for Jerusalem. Even now, of course, there's lots of discussion, isn't there, about Jerusalem dividing it up, making it a dual capital. God said, it's mine. You can't give away but belongs to God. Get away with it. Are you kidding me? So anyway, this is what's happening here. And so the bulk of the fighting will not take place in the Valley of Jezreel, just some of it. But remember, it's a campaign, so it'll take place throughout the land. And once again, the ultimate objective is Jerusalem, from which Satan wants to receive worship. And so it says, for instance, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3, it will come about 
in that day, uh, that I will, in other words, future, that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. See it? All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. That's what it says. It's not very far-fetched. Already happening. I'm shocked that the number of UN resolutions um, in condemnation of Israel, it's rather disproportionate in light of the fact that Israel's a dinky little country smaller than New Jersey and Israel has never initiated one of the wars in the Middle East. Interesting to me how that happens. Israel doesn't have suicide bombers. We don't train our kids to kill themselves in the process of taking out civilian lives so as to guarantee their place in heaven. We don't do this kind of a thing. So anyway, uh, Zechariah uh, says, yeah, but it's going to happen. So millions of combatants will be involved, I tell you. Uh, this will be a war the likes of which we have never seen. And the devastation will be enormous. Why? Because it's the time of the outpouring of God's wrath. It's very scary. But don't be nervous. You won't be there. If you're a Christian, remember, this is you. This is you. The, the tribulation isn't you. The tribulation uh, is for people who haven't gotten caught up to be with the Lord at the rapture because they have refused his deliverance and salvation. So, so I'm glad to know about this, but I'm really glad I, I'm not going to experience it. No, victory in Jesus. I'm not going through the tribulation. Help yourself if you want to. But I don't, maybe you're not going to if you're a Christian. And so then... Um, it says in Zechariah 12:9, and in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So I don't mean to be political. I just want to be biblical. You better support Israel's right to the land and its solitary, undivided, unitary capital because it seems to me God doesn't like folks who come against Jerusalem. I mean, I'm just kind of read this right over here. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I mean, that's pretty clear and simple, huh? I, I sort of want to be on God's side. He's sovereign, you know. So I'm not going to come against Jerusalem. Uh, Satan wants it really bad, but God has it and will keep it forever. Revelation sixteen seventeen says, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Have you heard those words before? The Lord Jesus, Mount, not Megiddo, Mount Calvary. You can visit that too. Golgotha, the place of crucifixion. When he finalized the price of redemption by himself being the substitutionary atonement for our sin, he said, it is done. It is finished. Paid in full. His blood 
is the redemptive price for all our sin. It is done. And once again, you'll hear those three words exclaimed in the land. But here, not when God finishes redemption, when he finishes judgment on the evil, anti-God nations of the world. I love it when I read the Lord Jesus said, it is done, Stuart. The penalty for your sin, it's finished, it's canceled out. Go in peace. Be filled with my spirit. Rejoice in my salvation and tell others. But I don't like this second one. It is done. The full outpouring of the unbridled and holy wrath of God upon a sinful world. Oh, I don't want to be finished uh, by the finishing of God's judgment. I want to accept the fact that Jesus was judged for me. Don't you? It defies logic to reject the crucified, risen Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It defies logic. Well, uh, there were flashes. This is what it says in verse 18 of Revelation 16. There were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake. How big? Well, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. I I articulate this with drama because I want you to um, never accept the... A position of some that says all this already took place in A.D. 70. It's called the preterist position. Please protect yourself from it. It's not true. Preterist, Latin term meaning past. In the past, this already took place. No, it didn't. This is the, a war, the scope of which has never befallen us. This is an earthquake, it says right here. Such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it. I'm telling you, there's atmospheric cataclysm, the likes of which nobody has seen yet. Look at verse 19. And the great city, that's Jerusalem, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Goodbye, London and Paris and New York and Clute. I'm throwing Clute. It's in there, the great cities. They're gone. And Babylon the great was remembered before God uh, to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Literally a city, Babylon, so some say, meaning ancient Babylon, they say, will be reconstructed along the shores of the Tigris and Euphrates. Maybe, I don't know. I sure know Babylon is a symbol of man's efforts to attain to heaven uh, without uh, making recourse to the grace of God. Tower of Babel. Let's all get together. One world, one dream. Sing songs, build a tower, get up. We don't need God. We don't need God coming down to be crucified and hang on a tree. We can get up. Come on. That's Babylon. I do know Babylon in the book of Revelation seems to be a summation symbol of the one world government, the one world economy, and the one world religion of Antichrist. Well, it's gone. Are you troubled by this unbridled outpouring of the wrath of God? Don't be. How could a holy God not take action against sin and rebellion? He's not a flower child God. I don't know if you knew that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, child, that whoever, 
any people group on earth would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But if the offer is refused, then God will finish the outpouring of his final wrathful judgment upon a sin-sick and corrupted world. And it's going to be so cataclysmic, in fact, that it says in verse 20 of Revelation 16, and every island fled away, goodbye Hawaii, and the mountains were not found. What's happening over here? I guess there'll be such cataclysm. The islands of the world will be swallowed up in some way uh, by the oceans, thus causing tidal waves, the likes of which we have never seen, perhaps to such an extent that the water literally covers the mountains which fall into the cracks of the earth in such fashion that they disappear and could not be found. And that's why I say the preterist position is bunk. That never happened in A.D. 70. Don't buy that stuff. You heard it here. <clears throat> but it's really true. Look, look, look. Did this happen? Has this ever happened? Revelation sixteen twenty one and huge hailstones. How huge? Oh, about a hundred pounds each. You know, in the law of Moses, the penalty for blaspheming God was stoning. That is your major stoning thing. That is your major ice, 100 pounds on, that's because Antichrist and those who follow him in the tribulation are rising up in blasphemy against the true God. Here's the penalty, 100 pounds of hailstones, they come down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Isn't that surprising? <clears throat> Not the weight of the hailstones, but the reaction of people. And men blasphemed God. Seven years of hellacious tribulation. Everything you know of is crumbling before you. The air and the water and the mountains and the rivers and all this kind of stuff. And men blasphemed God. <coughs> a, a hailstone weighing 100 pounds is like a big deal. Think about it. But this mystery is even harder to comprehend. That even at this time, men's reaction will not be repentance, but blasphemy against God. Which tells me something. Nobody refuses Christ because they have unanswered questions. Nobody refuses Christ because they have doubts. People refuse Christ because they love sin. Face it. That's why I kept them away for 23 years, and that's why you did. That's the reason. If you can only tell me what will happen to the aborigine then maybe I'll accept Christ. You know, all of these questions. If you can prove to me that the Bible is God's word. If you can... Nobody rejects Christ because of unanswered questions. People who reject Christ, particularly during the time of tribulation, do so because they hate God and love sin. That's the way it is. So to you and me, apart from regeneration and the grace uh, of Almighty God. And so the great tribulation will come to an end. How? 
with the final war, the campaign which will begin at Har Megiddo or Armageddon. And then the seven-year period of uh, unprecedented tribulation characterized by the outpouring of the wrath of God will come to an end at the battle of Armageddon. But is that the grand end of all things? Thank God, no. No, no, no. It's the beginning of things. Because at the end of the tribulation period is the most marvelous event next to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the second coming. And just when Israel is to be destroyed and overrun, the Lord Jesus returns. And I know when, and I know how, and I know where. And if you come next week, I'll tell you. That's a good way to do it, huh? So next week, Lord willing, we'll label another mountain. We are past the tribulation and we're on to bigger and better things. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll spend a few Wednesday nights trying to answer those questions. When, where, how, why? And then his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. The time, Isaiah says, will be characterized by the lying, lying down with the lamb. That's not natural. Yeah, yeah, that's right. God will reverse it all. And they will beat their swords into plowshares. Now we'll use agricultural instruments for agriculture and not to brutalize a neighbor. There will be war no more because God will put an end to it when he gives victory to his people, the remnant of Israel, and all people, Jews and Gentiles, who have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. You are in good hands if you have accepted the Lord Jesus. You're in desperate danger of an eternity characterized by deprivation of all needs. That is hell. Needs remain, but they go unsatisfied. Good night. Some of you are hungry right now. Can't wait to get out of here and get you a cheeseburger. Imagine that craving for eternity. (laughs) And worse, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't do it. This holy God whose wrath will be outpoured is so interested in keeping the people whom he has created from it that he did not withhold that which was most precious, his only begotten son. And the Bible says, if God didn't withhold even the Lord Jesus, how much more will he save us and forgive our sins? (laughs) 